I'm not exactly all that excited about where our country's headed. Um, so, not wanting to put a pall over this, um, and we are going to talk about some history, uh, but maybe not exactly the, the pump-me-up Thanksgiving sermon, but I want you to go away encouraged. But we've got some things that I've been thinking about. I just want to make sure we have a few minutes to really thoughtfully think about the things that we need to be praying for this week. We know Israel was established by God himself, and God gave himself to them. And he gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, and a covenant. He gave them Canaan, the best land on earth at that time. And so, there for your your sheet if you're filling it out, we know that God gave them himself. He gave them a Lord. Abraham was in the land of Ur when he heard God's voice telling him to go where I want you to go, to leave your father, to leave your land and go. And Abraham did. We know also that the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, comes out of the descendants of Abraham. Through that promise, that covenant that God made with himself for Abraham's benefit, they will be my people and I will be their God. Ultimately, on Mount Sinai, God gave them the law. They had just had 400 years of, let's call it a learning experience in Egypt. No, let's call it what it is. They were enslaved. And 400 years in a foreign land. And then Moses, Moses comes. And God, through Moses, brings them out and moves them toward the promised land. And in Exodus 20, we see the Lord's perfect directions for living, what we call the Ten Commands. So he gave them himself, Lord, he gave them the law, and he gave them a land. Moses, out of Egypt, into the desert, wanderings around into the land of Cana, a land that is flowing with, you know this phrase, right? Flowing with milk and honey. What's that say? A prosperous land, more than plenty there. God only asked them for one thing in return, that they would love him, obey him, and serve him. And what did Israel do? During the time between Moses and the rise of King Nebuchadnezzar, they denied the Lord, they defied the law, And they defiled the land. So God judged them. When you stop to think about this, the parallel with America 
is so obvious it's alarming. No other nation has ever had a Christian beginning like the United States. Our religious connection to God is second only to Israel. And remember, we do worship a Jewish Messiah. We too have been given the Lord, the law, and a land. And what have we done? We've acted like the nation of Israel. So think about it. Israel and America have both denied the Lord. Go back to Judges in, in, in Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet um, in the uh, southern kingdom of Judah. The nation of Israel had already split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Jeremiah is calling God's people to task. Now, by this point, the northern kingdom of Israel has already been wiped out by the Assyrians. Judah is the, the group that's left. And Jeremiah is trying to tell them what he sees is coming. Okay? It is a foretelling. Let's look in Jeremiah 2 and just read a few verses here. Long ago you, meaning the people of Israel, brought, uh, broke off your yoke, your connection to me, and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. There's a metaphor here. You may know what it is. Let's keep reading. I planted you like a choice vine, a sound and reliable stock. How then do you turn against me into a corrupt, wild vine? A different metaphor. Although you wash yourselves with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still there before me, declares the sovereign Lord, you caught that, right? You build high places and then bow down like a prostitute. What's he talking about? It's idolatry, right? Where the temples, the altars were built on hills, on high places. And he is equating their idolatry to prostitution. That's a pretty graphic and creative metaphor, isn't it? Doesn't that bring an image to mind of how much God hates idolatry? Let's keep reading down at verse 27. They say to the wood, you are my father, and to the stone, you gave me birth. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces, and yet, when they are in trouble, they say, come save us. Where then are your gods that you made for yourselves? 
Let them come if they can save you when you're in trouble. For you have as many gods as you have towns, old Judah. You hear what he's saying? Wait, hold it. You're giving difference to them. Let them come save you. Wood, stone. Can their idols really do anything? Now, I know you're thinking about this, and you're going, but hold on a second, Eric, Eric, Eric. We don't have any idols. <laughs> I, hear, I hear a couple of you thinking, yeah, yeah. We don't? I work for um, Southern Cross Corporation, a company in the natural gas industry, for 20 years after I got out of college. And um, in that time, I moved up, moved into management and hired people. And we, we had a hard and fast rule for our people that were out in the field that were working with gas companies all around the nation. Uh, it's very, very simple rule. It was this. You were not to discuss football, politics, or any other religion while on the job. Do you know what the definition of a fan is? A fanatic? We say fan as a short. Do you know what Webster says it is? It is a person with an uncritical enthusiasm or zeal for politics, religion, or sports. Winston Churchill, some years ago, quipped this definition. He said, a fanatic is one who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. Remember... All an idol has to be is something that takes the place of God in your life. School football program, a TV show, maybe a weight loss and, and fitness program, maybe Little League, or a drink, or a hit, or a snort. If it takes first place in your life, then it's an idol. Jeremiah 4, skipping forward just a little bit. The Lord says through Jeremiah, A lion has come out of his lair. A destroyer of nations has set out. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar getting ready to march south and take them into 70 years of captivity. He has left his place to lay waste to your land. Your, your towns will lie in ruin without inhabitant. So put on sockcloth, lament, and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned away from us. Do you hear what Jeremiah is saying? He isn't saying God is arbitrary and he'll put you under his thumb and crush you. What he is saying is we have angered the Lord. Therefore, his anger is what? Justified. 
and it's coming. Why? Because God never changes. Now we know we celebrate every week the sacrifice that he made because he knew when he gave us individual choice that we would all choose ourselves. And yet in his providence, in his love, in his grace, he came in the flesh and died for us to give us a different choice. But you see, his justice, his wrath, comes out of his love. But he gives us the choice. Israel had just as much choice as America has, as you have. October 1st, 2009, there was an ABC News report about Lakeview Fort Oglethorpe High School. A high school football team and its cheerleaders came under fire for something they were all in agreement with. They wanted the football team to come out onto the field bursting through a large paper banner with an inspirational Bible verse on it. And you ladies who, who have been cheerleaders, you know you spend hours building these things every week for them to be torn up in a half a second, right? Yes. So they did this. It started on nine because of 9-11-2001. So you see, they've been doing this for some eight-plus years It wasn't school sanctioned, and no one involved had any problem with it, but one parent raised a question. Should the school be allowing this? And the school board very quickly banned the process because the school board was afraid. Afraid of what? Of being sued. Happens many times since then. The superintendent, in fact, was in support of what the football team and the cheerleaders were doing, but just couldn't take the risk. And the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, has been suing school systems for commencement prayers, for pregame prayers. And the fear of lawsuit trumps what's right. I remember back when the city of Roanoke, like many municipal governments around our country, instituted a policy to disallow the sessions opening up with prayers in the name of Jesus because they were seen as sectarian and divisive. Something that had been done at school, at uh, 
city council meetings in Roanoke for the better part of 100 years or more. When Larry Atkin, minister at the Edgewood Christian Church, and uh, a month or so later, Harold Sumner, minister at the Roanoke Valley Christian Church, were invited to come and pray. They prayed in the name of Jesus. And they both got called on the carpet for it. And they both stood their ground. And the Roanoke City um, stopped calling on ministers from our movement to pray for them at their meetings. The Lord is slowly but steadily being expelled from every public venue. It started in the public schools, and it spread to public places, to courthouses, arguments about our coin, a pledge of allegiance, and on and on and on to the point where today some are fighting battles about what even we should be allowed to say in church. It's no longer just about the separation of church and state, but it's about the separation of America from God who founded her and has so blessed her throughout the years. And America has denied the Lord. Israel and America have both defied the law. Jeremiah 9.13, Jeremiah points out that God's judgment and wrath is coming because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and they have not obeyed and followed my law. By the way, anybody know what that building is? I just heard it. Who said that? That's the Supreme Court building. Now, that's not the side you normally see. The normally you see the west side, which is where the public comes in. This is the east-facing side where the people who work there and the judges come into the building from this side when they are outside, not coming in through their, their um, parking area at the building. It's interesting that the Supreme Court says it's against the law to display the Ten Commandments in a public place. Yet, if you look here at the facade on the east side, um, you see something interesting right there in the middle. Can you see what it is? It's Moses holding two tablets... Their building displays the Ten Commandments. But what's the reasoning? Why why is our government so against people hearing the Ten Commandments? You know what they've actually officially wrote? Is that if you display them, people might ponder them. And if so, they might obey them. And that would be a violation of the separation of church and state. We're doing what Israel did. 
After all, we wouldn't want our kids to see thou shalt not kill because they might obey it. Ladies, let me ask you this. If you were broke down in the worst part of town and you're in your car by yourself and you realize you got to do something, you don't have your phone, but you're going to have to leave your car and go find a phone or go find somebody. And it's dark. But you realize you got to do something. So you get out of your car and you start walking down the street. And you pass a house, has the lights on. There's people in there. There's a commotion. But you're going down to the local convenience store. And you hear the door open as you pass. And you hear four boisterous men come out of that house and they come down the street and they start walking the same direction you're walking in the dark and you're alone. How would that make you feel? And you hear their steps getting closer and you hear their conversation getting closer. In fact, you think you may have heard one of them say something about Jesus in not a cussing way. And you glance back and you notice they're all carrying Bibles. In fact, they just came from a Bible study. Now how would you feel? Would you feel frightened? Would you feel afraid? Would you be totally scared? That they might actually catch up with you and then not kill you? No. The direction of our once Christian nation, where we are going right now, is just foolish. And it's contrary to basic common sense. Now, we do not force our beliefs on anyone, but we have allowed the world to chip away at the core of our morality. Like Israel of old, we have denied the Lord and we have defied the law. And Israel and America have both defiled the land. Israel did that through the shedding of innocent blood. In fact, those high places, yes. Jeremiah 7, they have built high places of Tophet. Tophet, by the way, that means a place of fire. That's what that term means, Tophet. In the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. Something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. Yeah, but at least we don't do that. We don't sacrifice our children. Maybe not. With fire. God took his glory away from his people Israel when they did such things. 
and I believe he's in the process of removing himself from the good old U.S. of A. Not only for this reason, there are other sin that is rampant, sexual immorality. It's become acceptable. It's become condoned. It's being taught to our kids in the name of science. I guess what I'm getting at is this. We need revival. Can I give you a definition of revival? And I know this is going to hit a little hard, but um, revival is not coming into a room and getting all hyped up and listening to a good speech about stuff you already know and you already believe and then going out saying, yeah, we really kicked Satan today. That's not revival. Revival happens when the people of God do what God has already told us to do. Now, you may have to get hyped up to go say something to somebody else about Jesus or to talk about the things that you pray about and who you pray to and what God has done in your life. But revival happens when the people of God are spreading the good news. That's when revival happens. If you really want to feel the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, it is not a moment in a sanctuary along with other people when you feel this emotional thing. It is the confirmation of the Holy Spirit, especially when you realize that that person who just came into the the blood of Christ through baptism and was raised to a new life, that God used you to change that person's eternity. You want the confirmation of, of the Holy Spirit? Move the gospel forward we may not be able to do anything about the direction America is going. But we can do something about our neighborhood, about this town. We can affect this county. Are you with me? Okay. We need a moral and spiritual awakening. And honestly, if 9-11 wasn't enough, what do you think will be? Is it this present crisis? Aren't people already having some flashbacks to 9-11 with what's been happening over the last month? I was reminded of an illustration of the family fortune cycle. I don't know if you've heard of this or not. It's not particularly new. But it's, it's the idea of what happens with generational wealth, how things actually go. Um, and there, there seems to be this, this cycle that runs in uh, three stages. It can vary depending on the situation. But it seems to always occur something like this. 
And it's a model that seems to apply to Israel and to America. The first generation is the one who generates the fortune. They put in the hard work, they put in the sweat equity, and they are rewarded for it. What do we know about the generation of Israel that entered into the promised land? Do you remember? Under General Joshua, God gave them victory after victory. Walls came tumbling down. Kings were subdued. They won victories they never would have apart from the power of God. And that's just how it happened here in America when you stop to think about it. Go back to that very first war, the Revolutionary War. Britain had more men, more money, more machinery, and it was definitely a David and Goliath scenario, yet Providence God was on our side, and we won independence. Patrick Henry said this, this speech that sparked the revolution. He said, if life is so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains or slavery, forbid it, almighty God. I do not know what course others will take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. And it was game on at that point. And our country won that war. And George Washington became our first president. When he took office, he did his oath laying his hand upon the Holy Bible. When he had finished taking the oath, he kissed that Bible. In his very first act as president of this country was to lead the entire Congress in a two-hour worship session. Wonder what the ACLU would have said about that. In one of his inaugural addresses, you know he was in there twice, he said this. He said, no people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. Now, if I was to put that in plain English, God is the one who got us this far, and we better not forget it. That's what he said. Our founding fathers made it abundantly clear that this country was founded on, by God, on the Bible. Second generation. Second generation speculates the fortune. And in Israel, when the generation died out, the kids died out, things happened and changed as succeeding generations in Israel began to squander it all away. We go over to Judges 2, and we read this. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, 
I brought you out of Egypt and led you into a land that I swore to give to your forefathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make covenant with the people of the land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? You look at what he says there. God says, look at everything I've done for you. I delivered you out of slavery out of Egypt. I fed you manna in the desert. I guided you and guarded you into the promised land. And now look at you. Look at you. Why are you doing this? Judges 2-7, the Joshua generation, saw firsthand the, the great works of God. And then down at verse 2-10, we read, After that whole generation had been gathered to the fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. What a sad verse how did that happen I'll tell you one way it happened they didn't learn it from their parents and grandparents it died out this has happened in America since at least the 1960s some of you that are older may say it was happening before then that's just as far back as my memory goes And look at where we are today. America today is brainwashed by humanism, situational ethics, and relativism. We do not understand our moral foundations and the spiritual principles on which this nation was founded. And as a nation, we are actively trying to rewrite history to remove God from our land. Perhaps the saddest verse in Judges is actually the very last one. Judges 21, 25 says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Do you know what that is a definition of? It it is today. It's the definition of anarchy. When no one is in control and everybody does whatever they want to do, that there is no guiding moral, whatever laws are there, are broken with impunity. And a society cannot exist in anarchy. History proves it over and over again. The nation of Israel at that time became a people with no absolutes, no standard way to live by, and anarchy was the result Is this not the nation you and I live in today? Are these parallels not frightening? 
The third generation dissipates the fortune and it is gone. By Jeremiah's time, the word of God was lost. Now, it was found uh, under King Hilkiah. You can read about that in 2 Kings 22. They just happened to be working around and found some dusty books and went, oh, my gosh, here's the law. And they brought it back. And guess what? There was a revival because King Hilkiah saw it, loved it, changed his heart, repented, had it read to the people. The king, the people heard it. Loved it, repented, and they had this great revival that lasted a little over 20 years, a little over a generation. And by the time Jeremiah is there, the northern kingdom of Israel is already destroyed. The southern king of Judah is well on the way. The Babylonian invasion is just about to happen. They're going to get carried off into 70 years of captivity. And Judah will not know what hit them until it was too late. When God removed his hand of protection, what happened was utter devastation. And now we are in a new generation. Could this be the final generation of America? Ten years ago, if you asked me that, I wouldn't think so. But I tell you, it's been on my mind. I don't think it has to be. But friend, it is not a political answer. It is a spiritual answer answer that we need as a country under recent events. Are we going to let the gospel fade from our history or are we going to obey the commission that our Lord gave us? Is there any hope? I will tell you this, and I fully believe it. Where there is God, there is hope. Jeremiah 6, 16. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient past. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Not only does God never change, but the truth never changes. We may change in our understanding of where it lies, but we have to humbly adjust to the truth when we are not on it, when we're not following it. We know that the Lord wants to forgive. We know for us the ancient way is the way of Jesus Christ. We know that forgiveness is why Jesus came in the flesh. Why he died. Why he rose again. To show us the truth of his freedom. 
After all God has done for America, how can we spit in his face as we are? Friend, we need to pray for America. We need to pray for Christians in America. We need to pray for a national revival. Thanksgiving this week. We can go about and, you know, as we've done many, many times, and I'm sure very sincerely thanking God for being able to live in this land. And, and, and yes, I, th- I think you need to do that. But perhaps better, we need to thank him for being slow to anger and being patient with us. Allowing for repentance so that none may perish. If our nation is going to turn back to Christ, somebody's got to go tell them about his grace. Somebody's got to go tell them about God's son. So perhaps our thanks giving this year, we should thank him for giving us another chance to do just that, to share his son right here in Portage. Father God, we thank you that you do have people here in this country. And we thank you, Father, for this great country. We know all too well how our nation is turning away from you. And, Father, we call for your mercy both on our country and on your gathering, your church. Burden all of our hearts, Lord, for for the people you love in this city, in this county, in this state, in this country. Those people who don't know you. Where we have failed you, Lord, we confess that sin. And we thank you for giving us another chance to spread your good news. Most of all, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We know that it is through him that you provide life everlasting. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.